Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based medical podcast offering local content for local clinicians. I'm your host, Alyssa Hathaway. I'm a local GP and family planning clinician and head of James Cook University's clinical school here in Mackay on Yui Country. This collaborative podcasting project between Mackay Hospital and Health Service, local clinicians and JCU will bring you a different topic and guest in each episode. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this nation, their contribution to healthcare and the traditional owners of the lands on which we practice. Hi and welcome to our podcast today with Dr Gopan Hariharan. Uh, he's one of the neonatologists at Mackay Base Hospital. We wanted to talk about neonatal jaundice today, one of the most common conditions that requires medical attention in newborn babies, super common in general practice, and we need to be confident managing these babies. Gopan's also a senior lecturer with me at James Cook University here in Mackay. Welcome, Gopan. Thank you for having me today. Oh, thanks for coming along. Let's start off with a really common case that GPs may encounter. I see these babies all the time. Um, we had a little baby who was one week old, a little girl presenting for her routine seven-day baby check. Her birth was pretty uneventful at term and uncomplicated vaginal delivery, and the antenatal period was pretty unremarkable. Everything during the pregnancy had been fine. She'd had a normal morphology scan and maternal serology was all negative. There was nothing concerning there. And her clinical examination from the peds department prior to discharge was also normal. From memory, she was about 3.6 kilos when she was born. So that makes her a nice big baby. But on examination at day seven, she was quite jaundiced. She was otherwise fine, but that jaundice was quite remarkable. So I wanted to ask you today, Gopan, just how common is jaundice? So approximately 60% of term and 80% of preterm babies develop jaundice in the first week of life. So it's very common for babies to have jaundice. The question is whether that requires treatment or not. Around 3% to 9% of total neonatal population um, may need phototherapy as a treatment. There are a couple of reasons why babies are predisposed to jaundice. Firstly, the neonates have a larger red cell mass and a shorter lifespan. And we know that the bilirubin is a breakdown product of heme. And with a larger red cell mass and a shorter red cell lifespan, a greater release of bilirubin occurs into the circulation, therefore mm -hmm. predisposing to hyperbilirubinemia. Neonates also tends to have an immature liver function and that can lead to slower metabolism of bilirubin. Another factor is delayed passage of meconium, thereby there is increased reabsorption of bilirubin from the intestines. So oh, these are the reasons why jaundice is relatively common in babies. Right, that meconium isn't a factor I often think about. So are there any groups of babies who are at higher risk of jaundice? Apart from the babies being predisposed to jaundice by their nature itself, there are some maternal and neonatal risk factors that predispose some babies for exaggerated jaundice. The maternal risk factors would include blood group incompatibility related to ABO, 
or rhesus blood types. There are occasions when we come across minor red cell antibodies in, in a mother, and that can also result in um, exaggerated jaundice. But they would be predominantly pathologic um, jaundice, which appear generally within first 24 hours of life. Babies born to families from particular ethnicity, for example, East Asian or Mediterranean, tend to have a greater degree of jaundice. In a family, if there is a previous jaundiced baby who required phototherapy, then the subsequent siblings are at higher risk. And it's very important to note this uh, when taking a history. Maternal gestational diabetes is a very important risk factor. And that is attributed to uh, the polycythemia that these babies have. A larger degree of red cell mass um, can result in greater release of bilirubin into the circulation, thereby predisposing to hyperbilirubinemia. From a neonatal perspective, feeding is probably the most common condition that we see. And breast feeding itself puts babies at risk of increased jaundice, and we refer to them as um, breast milk jaundice. A reduced intake can predispose babies to jaundice because of dehydration and increased enterohepatic circulation. If the baby have hematoma or bruising, probably from birth trauma, these sites can release bilirubin resulting in exaggerated jaundice. As I already mentioned, the polycythemia in an infant of diabetic mother is a significant risk factor. Then there are factors causing hemolysis, example, G6PD deficiency. Again, that can lead on to pathologic jaundice. Uh, they could present in first 24 hours of life, or they could present with prolonged jaundice. Bowel obstruction, infection, and prematurity are all other risk factors for jaundice. So it's an exhaustive list of causes and predisposing factors. It is important to recognize that late preterm babies are at particularly elevated risk of jaundice. And we have several admissions to the pediatric ward. The late preterm babies are found to have difficulties with feeding and related dehydration can cause them to have severe jaundice and getting readmitted. So it is important that we shouldn't be reassured that these babies are born closer to term. They are at and it's important to remember that these babies are at risk of high uh, jaundice levels. Right, and of course, those late preterm babies, that would be at around 36, 37 weeks gestation when they're born. Is that right, Gopan? Yeah, absolutely. So 35 to um, 37 weeks, they were, those would be the late preterm babies. Okay. So when would jaundice be considered pathological then from your point of view? The jaundice is considered pathological if its onset is less than 24 hours. And as I already mentioned, conditions which can cause hemolysis, such as ABO or rhesus incompatibility, can result in pathologic jaundice. Pathologic jaundice can also occur if it persists more than two weeks of life when we refer to them as prolonged jaundice. The other factors which raises possibility of pathologic jaundice include 
if the baby is unwell, raising the suspicion of sepsis or has an elevated conjugated bilirubin component or has pale colored stools, these require prompt investigation and management. Right. So what would those key components of the assessment of that jaundice neonate be then, Gopan? When we encounter a baby who appears jaundiced, the relevant factors that needs to be taken into consideration are the age of onset. If the jaundice has manifested less than 24 hours, or if the jaundice has persisted more than two weeks, then they are considered pathological and needs further evaluation. Antenatal course is important, the presence of maternal antibodies or intrauterine infections can predispose to babies having jaundice. Presence of birth trauma from instrumental delivery, these babies could have cephal hematoma or significant bruising, and these could be sites where bilirubin is released into the circulation. Feeding is very important to look for. Breastfed babies have an increased risk of jaundice and referred to as breast milk jaundice. And if the feeding is inadequate, then it can lead on to dehydration and increased enterohepatic circulation, leading on to significant jaundice. It's important to ask parents whether baby has been passing dark urine that stains nappies or history of pale colored stools. And that could suggest significant pathologies like biliary obstruction, which needs urgent attention. Presence of a setting for ABO, rhesus, or any other hemolytic condition also needs prompt attention. If the baby is unwell or febrile child, then that could suggest a septic child, septic baby, and needs further evaluation along those lines and urgent treatment. Yeah. Okay. So we've assessed the baby now. And so as part of the examination, what particular things will we be looking at in the jaundice neonate then, Gopan? The key components um, important in evaluating a baby with jaundice would include a general examination, a general examination looking at general tone and neurological examination. The idea is to detect whether the jaundice is highly elevated, resulting in complications like conicterus. So that would be very important. And and if the baby has a shrill cry or abnormal tone, then that needs immediate attention and treatment. Hydration status would be very important, looking at capillary refill time and also looking at mucous membranes. And that would give us an idea whether the breast milk is sufficient in the first place. Plethora from polycythemia would be an indicator that the baby has a larger red cell mass releasing greater bilirubin into the circulation. Looking for bruising and cephalomatoma would be important and hepatosplenomegaly um, in the abdominal examination would allow us to think differential diagnosis pertaining to primary liver conditions. Sure. So What's then the initial approach when we're investigating the baby with jaundice? Any baby who visibly looks jaundiced um, needs a serum bilirubin done. And what we're looking for 
is both the unconjugated fraction and the conjugated fraction of bilirubin. If there is high bilirubin or, or once, we, once we get the serum bilirubin done, it's important to plot it on the gestation-based, our specific nomogram that's freely available from the Queensland or statewide guidelines. And this is to determine whether baby crosses the threshold for treatment uh, with phototherapy or exchange transfusion. If the condition warrants, then further testing like full blood examination and Combs test um, would be necessary if there is a suspicion of hemolysis. Right. So, of course, it's really the GP then who's most likely to come across these babies um, between 24 hours of life and 14 days of life when they're most likely to get jaundice. What would be the most common causes and then the relevant investigations needed for this group of normal jaundice in the neonates? Jaundice that occurs between 24 hours and 14 days of life is probably the most common presentation to the general practitioners, as you rightly said, uh, because if it was pathologic jaundice, generally it gets managed within the hospital itself within the first 24 hours. Sure. The common differential diagnosis considered will include physiologic jaundice, which is the most common, breastfeeding jaundice, sepsis, hemolysis, breast milk jaundice, or bruising from birth trauma. So the investigations would be targeted to rule out these possibilities. For example, if dehydration is a possibility from breastfeeding jaundice, then a serum sodium would be very important because it will be quite elevated in case of dehydration. A blood sugar would be useful if there is a gross, in order to detect hypoglycemia, if the feeding has been grossly inadequate. CRP, blood culture, urine culture, lumbar puncture as per sepsis protocol may be necessary for a baby who looks unwell and the suspicion is sepsis. In case of probable hemolysis, then a full blood examination, blood film, reticulocytes, neonatal blood group and typing, direct Coombs test would be important. A G6PD screen may be undertaken in certain high-risk group, for example, those coming from Asian ethnicity. And further workup for hemolysis may be necessary depending on the clinical um, situation. If we are confident that it is physiological jaundice, then no further testing is necessary. No testing is necessary if, um, if, it, if we are confident that it is breast milk jaundice or jaundice secondary to bruising. Good. Okay. So then for those babies in whom we think it is simply that physiological jaundice that you mentioned, what's the treatment then? The initial step in, in the treatment of hyperbilirubinemia is to establish that we are dealing with an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia or are we dealing with a conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. In order to determine this, it's important to look at the conjugated fraction of the bilirubin. And that should be less than 20 micromoles per liter. And the conjugated fraction is less than 20% of the total bilirubin. As I already mentioned, once we get the serum bilirubin, it is plotted into the bilirubin chart available from the statewide jaundice guidelines. 
And if the baby's bilirubin level is above a threshold for phototherapy, then baby may require admission for that. It's also important to treat underlying condition if we can find anything. For example, if the baby is breastfeeding and has lost weight, dehydration is a possibility and that might be contributing to exaggerated jaundice. In these situations, we generally involve maternal and child health lactation consultant and sometimes speech pathologist to help mother with breastfeeding. Speech pathology is particularly useful in late preterm babies where sucking and swallowing may not be entirely mature and it's useful for speech pathologists to get involved in these cases. So also, if there is a consideration of significant tongue tie um, affecting breastfeeding. In these situations, we also um, sometimes suggest formula feeds while the mother is having breastfeeding supported. So that's, that's um, not uncommon that sometimes we do recommend formula feeding if um, the mother is struggling with breastfeeding. If sepsis is a possibility, then we follow the statewide sepsis guidelines, uh, investigate accordingly and treat with antibiotics. If hemolysis is a possible, possible underlying cause, then we get full blood examination, G6PD, Coombs test, reticulocyte count, osmotic fragility, um, if hereditary spherocytosis is a, possi a possibility. Um, and um, in some cases, we do seek hematology opinion in managing these babies. We also review maternal blood group for ABO and rhesus incompatibility. Probably that's the most common thing that we look in the first instance. As I already mentioned, breast milk itself can cause significant jaundice. And that is due to factors which are transferred across breast milk and which can inhibit the metabolism of bilirubin by the liver. It can also lead on to breakdown of conjugated bilirubin in the intestine and, and releasing excess unconjugated bilirubin into the circulation. These babies are generally well looking with adequate weight gain. If we find that the conjugated fraction is high alongside having pale stools and dark urine that stains nappies, then biliary atresia should be considered and urgent gastroenterology opinion should be sought. Right. Um, Gopang, can I just ask you to go back to the breastfeeding jaundice? If you could just clarify for me, please, the difference between the breastfeeding jaundice and the breast milk jaundice. What's the difference? So breastfeeding jaundice generally occurs in the first week of life when breastfeeding is just being established. Inadequate feeding can result in dehydration and increased reabsorption of bilirubin from the intestines, resulting in hyperbilirubinemia. Inadequate intake sometimes also results in delay in passage of meconium, which contains large quantities of bilirubin that is then reabsorbed into the infant's circulation. Treatment is through supporting breastfeeding by involving lactation consultants and child health nurse as needed. And at times, as I already mentioned, sometimes we do 
suggest formula feeding if the parents wish um, while breastfeeding is being established. This is a temporary measure. We, we are advocates for breastfeeding, but this is just to tide over that, that, that phase when breastfeeding is being established. Sure. Some babies could have tongue tie, which needs assessment by speech pathologist and lactation consultant, and we facilitate that in the hospital in addition to our clinical review. Breast milk jaundice, on the other hand, generally occurs in the second or later weeks of life and continues for several weeks. It's postulated that factors such as beta-glucuronidase in breast milk increases the breakdown of conjugated bilirubin in the intestines to unconjugated bilirubin. There are other factors such as lipoprotein lipase and non-esterified fatty acids in breast milk, which inhibit normal bilirubin metabolism. And these can predispose to breast milk jaundice. The only way to establish the diagnosis is by temporary cessation of breastfeeding for 12 to 48 hours. And if we can establish that there is a dramatic decrease in serum bilirubin with stopping breastfeeding, then the breast milk jaundice can be diagnosed. It is also important to remember that we have to investigate thoroughly and make sure that we are not missing any substantial diagnosis before um, coming to the diagnosis of breast milk jaundice. And these babies continue to be a bit jaundiced to around six weeks, and, and that is acceptable. Okay, so... There's a lot of information here, Gopan. I might just try and summarize it if I can. Our approach to jaundice between 24 hours of life and two weeks of life starts with that detailed history and clinical examination, particularly checking for the dark urine and pale stools of biliary obstruction. And the other things that we're looking at would be checking the total serum bilirubin and looking at the fraction of the conjugated bilirubin, which should be less than 20%. We need to check the maternal blood group for ABO and rhesus type and any other minor blood group abnormalities that might pop up, plus the full blood count, the direct Coombs test, the reticulocytes and the blood film in suspected hemolysis. And then the other things will depend on that clinical picture, like the urea and electrolytes and the liver function test, other things that might contribute to a high rate of hemolysis like G6PD deficiency and hereditary spherocytosis. There was a sepsis workup as well, um, looking for congenital infections. So that would be the torch screen, of course, um, and screening for inborn areas of metabolism and things like that we would probably leave to the paediatricians as well as the thyroid function test and uh, other inborn errors of metabolism like uh, urine reducing substances and things like that there's a lot to be thinking about Gopan um, are there any groups of babies who we should be particularly monitoring and really um, keeping under close surveillance when they're first discharged there are a subset of babies that we do close surveillance especially those babies who had pathologic jaundice, for example, from ABO incompatibility or rhesus incompatibility. They are at risk of 
are continuing to have hemolysis and continue, continue to be jaundiced. So they require very close surveillance. The other group would be those who had cephal hematoma. They are at risk of jaundice. And so are some babies who had bruising from the birthing process itself. So in a nutshell, babies who have predisposing factors for exaggerated jaundice, we do a very close surveillance. And it's important to have a very close follow-up. Okay, so the follow-up required for babies who've received phototherapy, what should we be looking out for in those babies? So babies coming off phototherapy should have a repeat bilirubin after 18 to 24 hours to ensure that there is no rebound hyperbilirubinemia. Mm -hmm. A safe limit for stopping phototherapy is when the serum bilirubin has fallen less than 50 micromoles per liter from the threshold line for phototherapy. In order, to happen, in order for this to happen, the baby necessarily doesn't have to stay in the hospital. Once the babies are discharged from the hospital, we have child health nurses who visit the family and make clinical assessments and decide on further testing. Those from private facilities may have their own processes. Um, and in many of these cases, uh, we find that the general practitioner would be very closely involved in following up these babies. At the time of discharge, we give detailed verbal and written information on a neonatal jaundice so that they are aware of what to look for. The statewide neonatal jaundice guideline is a great resource to refer while managing these cases. Yes, of course. So What's the risk, Gopan, if babies are not identified promptly who, in fact, need treatment? Babies with exceedingly high unconjugated bilirubin are at an increased risk of kernicterus. And the kernicterus is a condition where excess unconjugated fraction of bilirubin crosses the blood-brain barrier and get deposited in various areas of the brain, especially the basal ganglia. In significant cases, this could result in dystonic cerebral palsy and other morbidities could be hearing deficit and neurodevelopmental delays. And that is the risk posed by significant jaundice and if there is delay in treatment. And that risk is posed by any of the pathologic causes that can result in jaundice. For example, ABO incompatibility. A rapid rise in bilirubin example, more than 8.5 micromoles per liter per hour, also puts the baby at particular risk. So it's, all, it's not only the absolute um, bilirubin value, it's also the rate of rise, which is important to uh, look at in case of evaluating a baby with jaundice. Okay, so now go Pan, let's go back to the baby that I was talking about at the beginning of this chat. You know this baby too. Um, when uh, we looked at this baby born at term who was jaundiced at one week of age, when I examined her, she was clinically well, but we sent her off to have her serum bilirubin checked. And when you looked at it, and I suppose you would have plotted it on the age-specific uh, Billy Rubin chart, you found that the level was high enough for the baby to warrant phototherapy. What happened next? Yeah, this baby got admitted to the pediatric ward because 
as you just mentioned, the, the levels were quite high above the threshold for phototherapy. We also noted that baby has had lost more than 10% of birth weight. And at that point in time, we did a serum sodium, which was 148, which was elevated and that suggested dehydration. So in addition to the phototherapy, we involved the lactation consultant in the hospital to help the mother with breastfeeding. And the parents were open to trial some formula feeds at that point in time, while the mother was establishing breastfeeding. We thought about other possibilities as well at that point in time. There was no setting for hemolysis as mother's blood group was A positive. And baby didn't have any particular features of sepsis. Baby was active uh, otherwise. Therefore, no further blood tests were needed. With adequate feeding established, the bilirubin steadily dropped to safe limits and we discharged the baby from the hospital after 72 hours. We ensured that the baby and the family was linked with the child health service in the community and a repeat bilirubin that was done in 24 hours after discharge was in safe limit and baby had demonstrated good weight gain. That's really reassuring into the story, isn't it, Gopan? So, Absolutely. Yeah, what would be your key take-home messages from this story on neonatal jaundice? So the key points would be to ensure taking a thorough history, performing a physical examination to rule out any significant underlying pathologies, and relevant investigations as necessary uh, to treat a jaundice neonate. It's important to pay particular attention to late preterm babies because of the uh, risks that I already mentioned. It's also important to consider a wide range of differential diagnosis in babies presenting with jaundice, even though physiologic jaundice is the most common cause. Pediatric referral is indicated for cases of early jaundice, that's jaundice appearing within 24 hours of life, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, babies with pale colored stools, prolonged jaundice, or any other additional concerns. Oh, look, thank you so much for your time, Gopan. We really appreciate you sitting down to talk through neonatal jaundice. I think next time we'll have to talk about prolonged hyperbilirubinemia, where it's a little bit different, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For more information about the Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs, or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline, and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, 
Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.